Welcome to Luke 21 Radio, a broadcast explaining biblical prophecy in the tradition of St. Augustine. And now, from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Luke 21 as we continue our study in biblical prophecy in the second epistle of Peter. And we're still in the first chapter because this is very rich, very deep, and very worthwhile material to study. And today we're going to be talking about the transfiguration parousia. And that's a mouthful, so hang on. I just double-checked, but if you look in an English Bible dictionary under P and look up parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, you'll see a listing for it, and it means coming or presence, but it's often used in the New Testament as a term for the second coming of Jesus. And we talk about the second coming, we're talking about the second parousia. It's a Greek word that theologians and Bible commentaries and Bible dictionaries just use in English exactly as it's spelled in Greek. Here's some examples. Matthew 24, verse 3, as Jesus sat in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be? What will be the sign of your coming, parousia, and of the close of the age? Matthew 24, 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming, parousia, of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37, one of my favorites, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, parousia, of the Son of Man. Now from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, parousia, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Now here's something, if you can put two paragraphs of scripture together, you can answer the entire rapture question. By the rapture question, those who are in the popular rapture at any moment view called dispensationalism argue that the rapture will be this secret event or semi-secret event that occurs before the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist and such. The scripture for the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, but I'm going to start two verses before because I want to put it in context. And this is the context of the rapture verse in the entire Bible. Again, verse 17, I'm going to start in verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord, parousia, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the archangel's call, and the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up, that's where some folks think this is a rapture at any moment, before the tribulation, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So 1 Thessalonians 4 
in the context of discussing the coming, the parousia of the Lord discusses the rapture verse, so to speak, in the New Testament. Now, you just turn the page a couple times to 2 Thessalonians, because whatever Paul said in 1 Thessalonians didn't quite get across with 100% clarity, so he wrote 2 Thessalonians just to nail the whole question down. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 gives you the timing of the parousia, or the rapture, if you want to call it that. Now concerning the coming parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter or by YouTube prophecy predictions, to be quickly shaken to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, what? The day of the parousia, the day of the coming. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, talking about the Antichrist. So the parousia, the coming of the Lord, in the context of talking about what people regard as the rapture, Paul says, don't be deceived. Something has to come first, namely the falling away and the rise of the Antichrist. So it's not before the tribulation period. It comes after that period. And then bringing it home to 2 Peter, in chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, waiting and hastening the coming parousia of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. And the next verse it says, and then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. So that's the end, right? The end, the end. And the parousia, the coming, is at the end, when the elements of the universe uh, burn up. So all of this is in context of when these things arrive. That's why this word parousia is so important. And again, I've shown you the verses where it's referring to the end. And if you put 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2 together, as well as 2 Peter 3, it all speaks of the end after the rise of the Antichrist and all of that type of thing. All right. Now, I hope you are ready to fall off your chair because here's something that many of you may have never heard of, okay? Peter was one of only three living earthly witnesses to view the transfiguration. Now, I'm titling this episode, The Transfiguration Parousia. You know what parousia is. I just gave you a quick overview. Now we go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and 3 verses, starting with verse 16. Listen carefully now. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is describing the transfiguration. These are some of the same words. It's found, for instance, in Matthew 17 for the transfiguration. The holy mountain, according to tradition in the Eastern Church, is Mount Tabor. Modern scholars like like Mount Hermon as the option, it's a little taller mountain, uh, in deference to the Orthodox who have preserved what I'm about to share with you. I'll call it Mount Tabor, but in any case, it was the transfiguration, and Peter is consciously calling it a parousia. Now, this should just throw you off a little bit, because if you go a little further into Second Peter, you're seeing that the false teachers are encouraging the immorality, the practice of sexual immorality, not a big deal. Don't be concerned about all these warnings about the second coming, the final parousia. And Peter is saying, no, you don't get this. We're the reliable teachers. We were there for the parousia in the life of Christ. It wasn't just a thought. It wasn't just an experience in our minds. This was something real. And the transfiguration was the striking event prefiguring the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was the parousia prefiguring the parousia. There's nothing else like this in the New Testament. So the transfiguration is the preeminent prefiguration of the second coming that, was, that occurred during the earthly life of Jesus. Now, let me ask you, I ask myself, how many homilies if you're a Catholic or how many sermons if you're a Protestant? How many commentaries if you read commentaries? How many scripture teaching broadcasts have given the briefest mention of a direct, profound connection between the transfiguration and the second coming of Christ. This is exactly what St. Peter is talking about in this epistle. Now, I'm going to ask the big question, because my belief that the basis of eschatology, of biblical prophecy, there's a not yet. We're looking to the future, okay? But there's an already. The miracle of Christianity is at a profound aspect of the future has invaded the present ever since the coming of Jesus. So what happens between the transfiguration and the second coming? And this is another profound verse. I gave it to you last time, but maybe once you can kind of grasp what we're talking about here. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. This is talking about you who are listening to me right now. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed. Metamorpho. This is the verb used for transfiguration in the Gospels. Metamorpho. It's like a metamorphosis. He was changed. He was transfigured. And Paul is saying, 
we're being transfigured into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. How does this happen? Well, it begins with the illumination, which is that light of Mount Tabor that comes into our lives. But particularly, the metamorpho occurs in the Blessed Eucharist. I'd like to quote an Eastern Catholic iconographer in her book, The Uncreated Light, a study of the transfiguration in the Eastern Church through icons. And she says, by receiving bread and wine, which are changed into the body and blood of Christ, man is gradually transformed into that which he is receiving without man's original identity falling away. So you ask yourself the question, how could this simple fisherman from the Sea of Galilee, Peter, come up with these sublime truths in Second Peter? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't from a book, which I have said, and it wasn't from seminary studies. And although I love books, I love seminary studies, the reason he came up with this is because he was on the mount and transformed by that experience. And the fisherman became a participant in the divine nature. And that's why he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that we have these very great promises to become participants in the divine nature. I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to episode 293 of Luke 21 Radio. Luke 21 is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at luke21.com.